Chapter Four of Ralph the Heir by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary Bonner. While Clarissa Underwood was being kissed on the lawn at Popham Villa, Sir Thomas was sitting, very disconsolate, in a private room at the Dolphin, in Southampton. It had required no great consideration to induce him to resolve that a home should be given by him to his niece. Though he was a man so weak that he could allow himself to shun from day to day his daily duty, and to do this so constantly as to make up out of various omissions, small in themselves, a vast aggregate of misconduct, Still he was one who would certainly do what his conscience prompted him to be right in any great matter as to which the right and wrong appeared to him to be clearly defined. Though he loved his daughters dearly, he could leave them from day to day almost without protection, because each day's fault in so doing was of itself but small. This new niece of his he certainly did not love at all. He had never seen her. He was almost morbidly fearful of new responsibilities. He expected nothing but trouble in thus annexing a new unknown member to his family. And yet he had decided upon doing it because the duty to be done was great enough to be clearly marked, demanding an immediate resolve and capable of no postponement. But, as he thought of it, sitting alone on the eve of the girl's coming, he was very uneasy. What was he to do with her if he found her to be one difficult to manage, self-willed, vexatious, or, worse again, ill-conditioned as to conduct and hurtful to his own children? Should it even become imperative upon him to be rid of her? How should riddance be effected? And then, what would she think of him and his habits of life? and this brought him to other reflections. Might it not be possible utterly to break up that establishment of his in Southampton buildings, so that he would be forced by the necessity of things to live at his home, at some home which he would share with the girls? He knew himself well enough to be sure that while those chambers remained in his possession, as long as that bedroom and bed were at his command, he could not extricate himself from the dilemma. Day after day the temptation was too great for him, and he hated the villa. There was nothing there that he could do. He had no books at the villa, and, so he averred, there was something in the air of Fulham which prevented him from reading books when he brought them there. No, he must break altogether fresh ground and set up a new establishment. One thing was clear. He could not now do this before Mary Bonner's arrival, and therefore there was nothing to create any special urgency. He had hoped that his girls would marry, so that he might be left to live alone in his chambers, waited upon by old Stem, without sin on his part. But he was beginning to discover that girls do not always get married out of the way in their first bloom and now he was taking to himself another girl. He must, he knew, give over all hope of escape in that direction. He was very uneasy, and when quite late at night, or rather early in the morning, he took himself to bed, 
his slumbers were not refreshing. The truth was that no air suited him for sleeping except the air of Southampton buildings. The packet from St. Thomas was to be in the harbor at eight o'clock the next morning. Telegrams from Cape Clear, the Lizard, Eddystone Lighthouse, and where not, having made all that as certain as sunrising. At eight o'clock he was down on the quay, and there was the traveling city of the Royal Atlantic Steam Mail Packet Company at that moment being warped into the harbor. The ship, as he walked along the jetty, was so near to him that he could plainly see the faces of the passengers on deck, men and women, girls and children, all dressed up to meet their friends on shore, crowding the sides of the vessel in their eagerness to be among the first to get on shore. He anxiously scanned the faces of the ladies, that he might guess which was to be the lady that was to be to him almost the same as a daughter. He saw not one as to whom he could say that he had a hope. Some there were in the crowd, some three or four, as to whom he acknowledged that he had a fear. At last he remembered that his girl would necessarily be in deep mourning. He saw two young women in black, but there was nothing to prepossess him about either of them. One of them was insignificant and very plain. The other was fat and untidy. They neither of them looked like ladies. What if fate should have sent him as a daughter, as a companion for his girls, that fat, untidy, ill-bred-looking young woman? As it happened, the ill-bred-looking young woman whom he feared was a cook who had married a ship-steward, had gone out among the islands with her husband, had found that the speculation did not answer, and was now returning in the hope of earning her bread in her old vocation. Of this woman Sir Thomas Underwood was in great dread. But at last he was on board and whispered his question to the purser. Miss Bonner? Oh, yes, Miss Bonner was on board. Was he Sir Thomas Underwood, Miss Bonner's uncle? The purser evidently knew all about it, and there was something in his tone which seemed to assure Sir Thomas that the fat, untidy woman and his niece could not be one and the same person. The purser had just raised his cap to Sir Thomas, and had turned towards the cabin stairs to go in search of the lady herself, but he was stopped immediately by Miss Bonner herself. The purser did his task very well, said some slight word to introduce the uncle and the niece together, and then vanished. Sir Thomas blushed, shuffled with his feet, and put out both his hands. He was shy, astonished, and frightened and did not know what to say. The girl came up to him, took his hand in hers, holding it for a moment, and then kissed it. "'I did not think you would come yourself,' she said. "'Of course I have come myself. My girls are at home, and will receive you to-night.' She said nothing further then, but again raised his hand and kissed it. It is hardly too much to say that Sir Thomas Underwood was in a tremble as he gazed upon his niece. Had she been on deck as he walked along the quay, and had he noted her, he would not have dared to think that such a girl as that was coming to his house. He declared to himself at once that she was the most lovely young woman he had ever seen. She was tall and somewhat large, with fair hair, 
of which now but very little could be seen, with dark eyes and perfect eyebrows, and a face which, either for color or lines of beauty, might have been taken as a model for any female saint or martyr. There was a perfection of symmetry about it, and an assertion of intelligence combined with the loveliness which almost frightened her uncle. For there was something there also beyond intelligence and loveliness. We have heard of an eye to threaten and command. Sir Thomas did not at this moment tell himself that Mary Bonner had such an eye, but he did involuntarily and unconsciously acknowledge to himself that over such a woman as this whom he now saw before him it would be very difficult for him to exercise parental control. He had heard that she was nineteen, but it certainly seemed to him that she was older than his own daughters. As to Clary, there could be no question between the two girls as to which of them would exercise authority over the other, not by force of age, but by dint of character, will, and fitness. And this Mary Bonner, who now shone before him as a goddess almost, a young woman to whom no ordinary man would speak without that kind of trepidation which goddesses do inflict on ordinary men, had proposed to herself to go out as a governess. Indeed, at this very moment, such, probably, was her own idea. As yet, she had received no reply to the letter she had written, other than that which was now conveyed by her uncle's presence. A few questions were asked as to the voyage. No, she had not been at all ill. I have almost feared, she said, to reach England, thinking I should be so desolate. We will not let you be desolate, said Sir Thomas, brightening up a little under the graciousness of the goddess's demeanor. My girls are looking forward to your coming with the greatest delight. Then she asked some question as to her cousins, and Sir Thomas thought that there was majesty even in her voice. It was low, soft, and musical, but yet even in that, as in her eye, there was something that indicated a power of command. He had no servant with him to assist in looking after her luggage. Old Stem was the only man in his employment, and he could hardly have brought Stem down to Southampton on such an errand but he soon found that everybody about the ship was ready to wait upon Miss Bonner. Even the captain came to take a special farewell of her, and the second officer seemed to have nothing to do but to look after her. The doctor was at her elbow to the last, and all her boxes and trunks seemed to extricate themselves from the general mass with a readiness which is certainly not experienced by ordinary passengers. There are certain favors in life which are very charming, but very unjust to others, and which we may perhaps lump under the name of priority of service. Money will hardly buy it. When money does buy it, there is no injustice. When priority of service is had, like a coach and four, by the man who can afford to pay for it, industry, which is the source of wealth, receives its fitting reward. Rank will often procure it, most unjustly, as we who have no rank feel sometimes with great soreness. Position other than that of rank, official position or commercial position, will secure it in certain cases. 
A railway train is stopped at a wrong place for a railway director, or a post office manager gets his letters taken after time. These two are grievances, but priority of service is perhaps more readily accorded to feminine beauty, and especially to unprotected feminine beauty, than to any other form of claim. Whether or no this is ever felt as a grievance, ladies who are not beautiful may perhaps be able to say. There flits across our memory at the present moment some reminiscence of angry glances at the too speedy attendance given by custom-house officers to pretty women. But this priority of service is, we think, if not deserved, at least so natural as to take it out of the catalogue of evils of which complaint should be made. One might complain with as much avail that men will fall in love with pretty girls instead of with those who are ugly. On the present occasion Sir Thomas was well contented. He was out of the ship and through the custom house and at the railway station and back at the inn before the struggling mass of passengers had found out whether their longed-for boxes had or had not come with them in the ship. And then Miss Bonner took it all, not arrogantly as though it were her due, but just as the grass takes rain or the flowers sunshine. These good things came to her from heaven, and no doubt she was thankful. But they came to her so customarily, as does a man's dinner to him, or his bed, that she could not manifest surprise at what was done for her. Sir Thomas hardly spoke to her except about her journey and her luggage till they were down together in the sitting-room at the inn. Then he communicated to her his proposal as to her future life. It was right, he thought, that she should know at once what he intended. Two hours ago, before he had seen her, he had thought of telling her simply where she was to live, and of saying that he would find a home for her. Now he found it expedient to place the matter in a different light. He would offer her the shelter of his roof, as though she were a queen who might choose among her various palaces. "'Mary,' he said, we hope that you will stay with us altogether. To live with you, do you mean? Certainly to live with us. I have no right to expect such an offer as that. But every right to accept it, my dear, when it is made, that is, if it suits you. I had not dreamed of that. I thought that, perhaps, you would let me come to you for a few weeks till I should know what to do. You shall come and be one of us altogether, my dear, if you think that you will like it. My girls have no nearer relative than you, and we are not so barbarous as to turn our backs on a new-found cousin. She again kissed his hand, and then turned away from him and wept. You feel it all strange now, he said, but I hope we shall be able to make you comfortable. I have been so lonely she sobbed out amidst her tears. He had not dared to say a word to her about her father, whose death had taken place not yet three months since. Of his late brother-in-law he had known little or nothing, except that the general had been a man who always found it difficult to make both ends meet, and who had troubled him frequently, not exactly for loans, but in regard to money arrangements which had been disagreeable to him. 
Whether General Bonner had or had not been an affectionate father, he had never heard. There are men who, in Sir Thomas's position, would have known all about such a niece after a few hours' acquaintance. But our lawyer was not such a man. Though the girl seemed to him to be everything that was charming, he did not dare to question her, and when they arrived at the station in London no word had as yet been said about the general. As they were having the luggage piled on the top of a cab, the fat cook passed along the platform. "'I hope you are more comfortable now, Mrs. Woods,' said Mary Bonner, with a smile as sweet as May, while she gave her hand to the woman. "'Thank ye, miss. I'm better. But it's only a moil of trouble, one thing as well as t'other.' Mrs. Woods was evidently very melancholy at the contemplation of her prospects. "'I hope you'll find yourself comfortable now.' Then she whispered to Sir Thomas, she is a poor young woman whose husband has ill-used her, and she lost her only child, and has now come here to earn her bread. She isn't nice-looking, but she is so good. Sir Thomas did not dare to tell Mary Bonner that he had already noticed Mrs. Wood, and that he had conceived the idea that Mrs. Wood was the niece of whom he had come in search. They made the journey at once to Fulham in the cab, and Sir Thomas found it to be very long. He was proud of his new niece, but he did not know what to say to her, and he felt that she, though he was sure that she was clever, gave him no encouragement to speak. It was all very well while, with her beautiful eyes full of tears, she had gone through the ceremony of kissing his hand in token of her respect and gratitude, but that had been done often enough and could not very well be repeated in the cab. So they sat silent, and he was rejoiced when he saw those offensive words, Popham Villa, on the posts of his gateway. "'We have only a humble little house, my dear,' he said as they turned in. She looked at him and smiled. "'I believe you West Indians generally are lodged very sumptuously.' "'Papa had a large straggling place up in the hills, but it was anything but sumptuous.' I do love the idea of an English home where things are nice and neat. Oh, dear, how lovely! That is the River Thames, isn't it? How very beautiful! Then the two girls were at the door of the cab, and the newcomer was enveloped in the embraces of her cousins. Sir Thomas, as he walked along the banks of the river while the young ladies prepared each other for dinner, reflected that he had never in his life done such a day's work before as he had just accomplished. When he had married a wife, that indeed had been a great piece of business, but it had been done slowly, for he had been engaged four years, and he had, of course, been much younger at that period. Now he had brought into his family a new inmate who would force him, in his old age, to change all his habits of life. He did not think that he would dare to neglect Mary Bonner and to stay in London while she lived at the villa. He was almost sorry that he had ever heard of Mary Bonner in spite of her beauty, and although he had as yet been able to find in her no cause of complaint, she was ladylike and quiet, but yet he was afraid of her. When she came down into the drawing-room with her hand clasped in that of Clarissa, 
he was still more afraid of her. She was dressed all in black, with the utmost simplicity, with nothing on her by way of ornament beyond a few large black beads, but yet she seemed to him to be splendid. There was a grace of motion about her that was almost majestic. Clary was very pretty, very pretty indeed, but Clary was just the girl that an old gentleman likes to fetch him his slippers and give him his tea. Sir Thomas felt that, old as he was, it would certainly be his business to give Mary Bonner her tea. The two girls contrived to say a few words to their father that night before they joined Mary amidst her trunks in her bedroom. "'Papa, isn't she lovely?' said Clarissa. "'She certainly is a very handsome young woman.' "'And not a bit like what I expected,' continued Clary. "'Of course I knew she was good-looking. I had always heard that, but I thought that she would have been a sort of West Indian girl, dark and lazy and selfish. Ralph is saying that is what they are out there.' "'I don't suppose that Ralph knows anything about it,' said Sir Thomas. "'And what do you say of your new cousin Patience?' "'I think I shall love her dearly. She is so gentle and sweet.' "'But she is not at all what you expected,' demanded Clarissa. "'I hardly know what I expected,' replied prudent Patience. "'But certainly I did not expect anything so lovely as she is. "'Of course we can't know her yet.' but as far as one can judge, I think I shall like her. But she is so magnificently beautiful, said the energetic Clarissa. I think she is, said Sir Thomas, and I quite admit that it is a kind of beauty to surprise one. It did surprise me. Had not one of you better go upstairs to her? Then both the girls bounded off to assist their cousin in her chamber. End of chapter 4 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina.